One of the most horrific wars in the history of humanity was the First World War, sometimes referred to as the Great War. And during the First World War, you had the two sides dug in in their trenches with the no man's land in between and, uh, and just the, the endless routine of shooting and waiting and suffering and the rats and the mess and the disease that was uh, taking life after life just as the bullets were. And then Christmas Day came. And on Christmas Day, with the, apparently the mists there in the, the no man's land in between the two trenches, uh, the sound of Christmas carols was heard coming from one side, and it was answered with the same carol in another language from the other side. I forget which carol it was. Was it Silent Night? So Silent Night and Stille der Nacht, or whatever it is in German, and there, the carols going back and forth, and, and there was a ceasefire. They chose not to fight that day. In fact, they chose to play football, which seems like a far more sensible solution to all conflict, although having said that, the Germans have tended to win over the years. But they decided to play football, and, and the guns were laid down, and the bullets were still, and, and there was peace for 24 hours. Why was it that peace broke in in the midst of that most horrific conflict? Was it simply that these soldiers are, are there in those trenches and they're missing home and they're longing for yesteryear and with some sort of nostalgic feeling uh, they, they sort of go after the Christmas uh, peace? I think there was probably an element of that. But I suspect that amongst the soldiers on both sides, there were those who knew the Christmas story well enough to know that the Christmas story itself speaks of peace. This year we've, we've labeled the Advent series that we've had here, Christmas Peace. And, and what you find is that the theme of peace, it weaves subtly like a ribbon all the way through the, the story of Christmas. And it kind of comes to a big climax, I suppose, with the angels appearing to the shepherds, well, one angel appearing to the shepherds and explaining what's going on to the shepherds. And then the heavenly host with that angel declaring, singing, saying, whatever it was, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So peace was, was, was the very heart of the description of what Christmas was actually about. We need peace, don't we? We live in a world filled with conflict. We see it all around us. You only need to watch the news for four or five minutes to see conflict between nations, conflict between people groups, conflict in, in uh, houses of parliament. We watched, was it Ukraine recently, a little bit of conflict breaking out within the government. We see conflict between gangs, conflict between uh, different groups. We see conflict in schools. We see conflict in neighborhoods. We hear about and maybe we even experience conflict in families and in homes. And maybe we also know what it is to have conflict going on inside of us. We're in a world that is massively conflicted. And so if Christmas can somehow offer us peace, we need to take that seriously. 
We need to look carefully and say, okay, so what is it about Christmas that that is going to give us peace? Is it just another annual festival that we, we go crazy, panicking, shopping, doing everything for several weeks, and then there's a couple of hours where it's kind of tranquil, you know, and then the queen does her speech, and then nerves get frayed, and by 5 p.m. the kids are crying, and everyone's upset, and tension is back, and life returns to normal. Is that Christmas peace? Because if that's all it is, it's kind of rubbish. Now, the Christmas peace is much more than that. And so what I want us to do is look at one of the two accounts of the Christmas story. And, and for this year, we focused in completely on Luke. I, I felt guilty. So I, you notice I put a Matthew reading in there? I just felt bad. No Matthew for a whole Christmas season. It didn't, didn't seem right. But we're going to stay with Luke. And we're going to look at Luke 2, really from the point where Ben finished reading. And, and the thing about Luke is that he begins his, his uh, document that he's writing to this person, Theophilus, by saying, listen, I've, I've investigated this carefully. I've written an orderly account, and I want you to be absolutely certain of the things that you've been told. So Luke is absolutely committed to communicating the truth of the first Christmas. And one of the ways Luke does that is he kind of falls into this pattern. I suspect it was no accident where he, he pairs up his content. They, they used to say in the, in the testimony of two witnesses, a, a fact is established. And Luke gives us pairs of witnesses all the way through his book. And so in chapter 1, it starts in the temple, and, and there's this elderly priest, Zechariah, and he's visited by an angel, the angel Gabriel, who tells him, you're going to have a boy, and your boy's going to be special, and your boy's going to be the prophet that comes before the Lord himself. And, and Zechariah's amazed by that. And he comes out, he, he, he asked a question he shouldn't have asked. He comes out, he's not able to speak, even though he's bursting to speak. And for the next nine months, he sits there, probably uh, paging through the, the, the scrolls of the Old Testament, making sense of what the angel said to him. And then the story that Luke tells us goes to Mary. She's, she's not significant. She's a nobody up in Nazareth, and Gabriel comes to her. So there's two visits from the angel Gabriel. And Mary is told, you're going to have a child, and this child is going to be really special. He's going to be great. He's going to be, he's going to be the son of the Most High. And she's just blown away, but, but she says, okay, I, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you've said. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and, and Elizabeth is, is further along, and the two chat about pregnancy and angel visits and all those kind of things, and, and before that story ends, she sings her song. Uh, sometimes we call it the Magnificat, and some churches use that label, others just say Mary's song, uh, but Mary sings this song about how God in his greatness has reached down to care for the poor and the meek and the, the lowly and the insignificant, just like her. And then before the chapter ends, we're back to Zechariah again, and he sings a song. There's two songs, all about this baby that's coming, this little boy Jesus. And so Zechariah's song, that again with its Latin name, is the Benedictus. It's the, the, the blessed be God who has done all these great things. And he finishes that great song. He had nine months to, to write it up here. So he was ready to go. And, and he comes to the end of his song and he talks about how God is going to guide our feet into the paths of peace. In Mary's song, even in what the angel had said in the temple, this theme of peace was coming through. 
And then we come into chapter 2 and and we had the reading tonight of of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem and the time came while they were there and she gave birth and she had a son and and he was wrapped up and and laid down in a manger, just a very humble birth, Uh, nothing spectacular about it at all. It wasn't a palace, it was just very, very humble circumstances and, and there he was. And then the angels come. Uh, to the shepherds, and they make the great declaration that God in the highest is to be glorified, of course. But on earth, he's bringing peace. It's peace that that is wrapped up in that little bundle of, of swaddling clothes, as we say, swaddling cloths, and lying in a manger. And so... You've had two visits from the angels, there have been two songs, Uh, there are two boys born, and now, uh, as we come to the end of that story, the shepherds go off telling everybody what they've seen and heard, there's a pair, and they go off, and Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. Now, the, the circumcision happens after eight days, the bit that we're looking at is probably six weeks after the birth. And, and it's a few things combined. There's, there's the, uh, the purification part. I mean, after giving birth, there's sort of an uncleanness in the Jewish law. And so Mary needs to take care of that. Who knows? Maybe Joseph was involved in the birth, in which case he too would be unclean. And maybe he needed to go through those rites as well. There was the redeeming of the firstborn. Now, they didn't need to bring Jesus along for that. All they needed to do was turn up and, and pay a price and, and, and then... That ritual was taken care of. But they brought Jesus, I think, because they were dedicating him to the Lord, saying, Lord, this is, this is yours and this is you. I don't quite get it, but this is yours. This boy is yours, and so he's yours to serve you. We just give him to you. And so this little couple, I mean, I don't know if they were short, of course, but insignificant couple walking into the temple courts. I imagine, I remember when we had our first child. You carry your fifth child around much differently than your first child, I can tell you. Fifth child, swing him around in the car seat, no problem. First child, ooh, very, very careful. And here's this really young couple. Mary's a teenager. Joseph's probably an older teenager. They're young. They're not even married fully yet. And, and, and somehow they've been given this child. You can imagine Mary just... just wrapping him up carefully, watching every step, and Joseph you know, making sure, excuse, excuse us, excuse us. And they're coming into the temple courts, just another couple with just another baby. But they're not just another couple. And this certainly isn't just another baby. Because God wants the whole world to know who that baby is. And so there's two people waiting for them. Another two. This is typical Luke. It's a man and a woman. You you may like to look through Luke, and apparently, I haven't checked this out, but apparently there are 27 pairs of male and female put side by side in Luke. He loves to show that Jesus came for all people, both men and women. And so there's a man, Simeon, and there's a woman, Anna, and both of them are going to say something about this baby. So let's look at the passage just for a few minutes and see what happens. So they've, they've come in, they've, they've made this uh, offering of a pair of doves or, or two young pigeons, verse 24. There were other offerings, they could have gone a little bit more upmarket, but this is the sort of the poor man's option. And they were just a, a young couple, this is just a carpenter from Nazareth, so you know, they go with the poor option. 
And then it tells us, verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means he was waiting for God to make things right. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's amazing. Imagine being him. Somehow God told him, you're going to live until you see the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the deliverer. I'm sure Simeon would have spent many, many hours thinking back over thousands of years, a couple of thousand years since God had made a promise to Abraham. Even further back to the promise God had made to Adam and Eve right back at the beginning. That he was going to send a deliverer and and he thought about all those people and all those generations. And he would have pondered all of that and probably struggled to get a breath just with the excitement that God had told him, you're going to get to see the Christ. You're going to get to see the Messiah. And so he was waiting for that. This is a a godly man and he's waiting. And in verse 27, he's moved by the spirit, went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Now, I don't know if Mary freaked out at that point. (laughs) You know, first children, you don't tend to give them up for cuddles too often, especially to strangers. But maybe there was something about Simeon that they could just tell. This is a godly man, and he means no harm here. And so Simeon takes the baby Jesus and holds him in his arms. Imagine how fast his heart was beating as he praised God for the privilege of setting eyes on the Messiah, the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior, the one that God was sending to make things right. We skip down. We'll come back to what he said in a minute. But verse 36 it says there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Fanuel. Sounds Welsh, doesn't it? Let's say Fanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Or for 84 years she was a widow. You could take it either way. Either way is a long time. So she was married in early teens in those days, widowed about 20, 22. And then for 60-odd years or for 80-odd years, she'd been a widow. And, and notice what it says about her. She never left the temple. Obviously, there's some special arrangements for this dear old soul. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There's the two witnesses. Simeon and Anna, these two very special individuals that God brings along just at the right moment to to bring like a, it's like a big yellow highlighter pen, just to put a big yellow highlight over the whole thing and say, this child is massively important. Don't miss who he is. In fact, let's see what Simeon had to say about this child. Let's go back to verse 29. Let me read this through and then I'll I'll just summarize it for us. Verse 29, Simeon said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul too. Five things that we see here. By the way, for those of you that are uh, collecting the Latin names for these sections, uh, this is kind of fun, isn't it? We had the, the Magnificat and we had the Benedictus. This is the Nunc Dimittis, which is from the Now Dismiss Me. Okay, so five things. That's not really that significant. I just thought I'd mention it. Uh, verse 30, first thing. It says there, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This baby, this little boy, Jesus, this is God's salvation. That's huge. All of those centuries of longing and waiting, of of praying and begging God, would you do something now? Would you deliver us now? Would you save us now? And here he is, six, seven, eight pounds of, of flesh wrapped up. This is God's salvation. That's huge. All of the things I listed earlier, all the the conflicts, the conflicted families, the conflicted relationships, the uh, the conflicts in the world, the conflicts within us. You know what's the, the root cause of all of that? It's the fact that since the beginning, every one of us has been shaking our fist at heaven and saying, we don't need God to be God, we can do God pretty well. All right, we, we, can, we can take charge, we can be boss of our own lives. And some people shake their fist at heaven and they, they go off into to gross rebellion and you know, they live in certain places and do certain things and, and most of us go, I'm, oof, that's terrible. But others of us shake our fist at heaven and then try to be really good. Well, we try to live good lives, we try to pay most of our taxes, we try to stick to the speed limit most of the time. We, we try to be better than the next person, we certainly try to be better than the people on, uh, you know, Crime Stoppers. Because then, because then surely God is going to be okay with us and we can carry on in our independent rebellion because it's still rebellion. If we say, God, I don't need you, I can live my life my way, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether we go into the grossest of sins or whether we live the most perfect of Boy Scout lives. If we're living in independence from God, the Bible says that is sin and the wages of sin is death. How are we going to be rescued from that? How can we be saved from the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against the holy God? It's all wrapped up in that little bundle of flesh. That is God's salvation, that baby boy Jesus. Second thing he says that we need to notice here is that Jesus, verse 31, is for all people. You notice what he said there in verse 32, Gentiles and Israel. Now that's everybody. Israel, of course, is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And the Jews would refer to everyone else, just as a little bit broad brush, shall we say, but everyone else is in another category. We're all Gentiles. We're just the nations. And what Simeon is saying here is that this boy Jesus is God's salvation for all people, Israel, all nations. That means that he is God's salvation offer for us. 
English, Welsh, Scottish, Irish, whatever our background is, he is the option. And he's come not just locally, parochially, for some little village there back 2,000 years ago. He's come for all of us. Third thing that uh, Simeon says in verse 34 is basically that he's going to be massively controversial. He's going to cause the rising and the falling of many and be a sign that will be spoken against and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You know, it's, it's interesting even today. If you have a conversation with people and you talk about God, it's okay. You know, if, if, you, if you're asked to pray at a public event and you pray to God, you're fine. You won't cause any upset. But the moment you bring Jesus in, <sighs> rooms divide. It's always been that way. Jesus has always been the, the point of division. People are happy with a generic God, just sort of a, a being that we don't need to deal with. But when we start saying that he's stepped in and he's made exclusive claims and, and he's claimed to be uh, the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, suddenly Jesus is highly offensive. And so people are okay with God, they're not okay with Jesus. And the Bible tells us, Simeon tells us, that's what it's going to be like. This child is going to split groups. And he always did. I just think of, uh, you've probably heard the verse before, John 3.16. Let me just nip over to John for a moment. John 3.16, you, you know, right? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Right? Next verse. Listen to how it carries on. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We will never be able to stand before God and say, no, you're right, I didn't, I didn't take much to Jesus, but I was on your side, God. God will never accept that. He's going to say, you rejected my Son. He was the one. He was the offer. He was the salvation. He was the one that revealed me. He's the only way to get to me. You can't find a detour and get to the Father without the Son. In fact, at the end of that chapter, it says this. Uh, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There's two options. Either we accept the Son or we reject the Son. Jesus is the one that divides all people into those who are his and those who are not. Strong stuff, isn't it? Not comfortable. It's not supposed to be because Jesus, from the very beginning, even as a six-week-old baby, Simeon says he is controversial. And then he says something to Mary. He says, this child, Mary, is going to be painful for you. A sword is going to pierce even your own soul. I wonder what she thought that meant. I wonder how many nights she laid awake, and we all know that mums lay awake at night. It's kind of part of how it works. And, and I wonder how often she lay awake after Jesus was fast asleep. I wonder how often she lay awake thinking, how, when is a sword going to pierce my soul because of this child? 
she lived. We don't know what happened to Joseph. Joseph kind of disappears, but Mary's around when Jesus is fully grown in his 30s, doing his ministry. Maybe you remember the time where Jesus shows up at his wedding with all his disciples. It's in John chapter 2, and and, and Mary, I think, as a a typical mother, is a little bit maybe concerned because her son, with his band of Mary followers, have maybe gate-crashed this party, and the wine has run out. That's not good. It brings shame on the, the host and all of that. And so she goes to Jesus and tells him that he needs to fix it. And he puts her gently and, uh, I think, lovingly in her place and says, no, this isn't my time yet to start doing that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, he steps in. He's concerned for the host. He does the whole water into wine miracle. uh, And and everybody is thrilled, especially uh, the the guest of honor. And Mary was there, and she was there at various points during those three years when Jesus was doing miracles, when Jesus was was becoming popular, when Jesus was becoming controversial, when when all of the stuff was going on. And she was there that time when Jesus was led out that first Easter, uh, led out to Golgotha, to Calvary, and he was nailed on the cross and, and elevated up on that cross, the most humiliating, painful, slow death that the Romans could come up with. They perfected it as the ultimate deterrent. And there was Jesus hanging on that cross, and Mary was right there. I wonder if those words came back to her in that moment. A sword will pierce your own soul, too. As she watched her firstborn son hanging on that cross and dying that most brutal of deaths, I imagine it felt just like a sword going right through her. Jesus was God's salvation. He was God's salvation for all people, still is. He's controversial, still is. He was going to be a painful, uh, a source of pain, shall we say, for, for Mary, his mother. But I want us to notice one more thing, number five. And for that, let's go back to the start of what Simeon said in verse 29. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I think this is an amazing thought here. And obviously it's it's specific to the circumstance at one level. Simeon has been told you're going to see the Christ. You're going to see the Savior. And in this moment, he's looking, he's holding, he's he's looking into the eyes of this this little boy child and, and he's trying to fathom it, but he knows that having seen this child, there's nothing else that he needs to do, nothing left. He is completely happy to go home to heaven now. You can now dismiss me, Lord, and if, if I die now, I die in peace. That strikes me as as something worth pondering for a moment because I I think one of the greatest fears for many of us is death. In fact, more than death, what comes after? Because the Bible says that it is appointed to everyone one one time die and then immediately face the judgment. And you go, hang on a minute, if we're going to die and then face judgment, I'm not looking forward to that. And I think it's this innate sense that one day we're going to give an answer to a holy God that makes people like us go, oh, I just kind of would rather pretend it's not going to happen. And yet Simeon's saying, I've seen Jesus, I'm ready to die. And the amazing thing is that for the past 2,000 years, as the message of Jesus has been preached around the world, do you know that we're sitting here right now, and as we're sitting here, the message of Jesus is going around the world even now. Isn't that amazing? 
There's people in, in cafes meeting one-on-one in, in North Africa uh, talking about Jesus. There, there's, there's gatherings of Christians in churches in different parts of the world. There's, there's secret gatherings in places where they're not allowed to meet openly, but they're sneaking in through the back door so that they can whisper hymns together and, and read about Jesus in the Bible. There's people listening to the radio, people on the internet, people all across the planet that are finding out about Jesus and they're drawn to him and they're attracted to him. And here's the thing. Consistently down through the years, there have been this this great army of simians, people that having caught a glimpse of who Jesus is, they're ready to face death, the ultimate foe, the ultimate obstacle. They're ready to die. Think of people who've been martyred for their faith. In fact, yesterday, I was just reading yesterday, was the anniversary of the death of Hugh McHale. You've probably never heard of Hugh McHale. He was Scottish, 26 years old, and yesterday was the 346th anniversary of Hugh McHale's execution. He was ordained at age of 20. Within a year, he had to flee the country. The king, Charles II, had it in for people like Hugh. And he he went overseas. He came back, and he was uh, hiding out uh, kind of successfully in Galloway. Uh, And then he made the mistake of joining a a troop of uh, people called Covenanters. Anyway, his health wasn't good. He couldn't keep up with them, ended up getting caught. He was, uh, before he was executed, he was tortured, uh, and he wouldn't give the name of any of the others. And they tortured him and they tortured him and in the end he was sentenced to death. And yesterday was the anniversary of when he was led out to the scaffold to be hung. And Hugh McHale is actually not that amazing. He's just one of many who've done a simian, who've been ready to go because they know Jesus. Let me read to you his words. This is what he said when he was on that scaffold. In fact, this so stirred the crowd that from this point on they started using drums. The soldiers beat drums so that you couldn't hear the final words of these martyrs dying for Jesus. These are his words. He said, Now I leave off to speak any more with created beings, and I begin my communion with God, which shall never be broken off. Farewell, father and mother, friends and relations. Farewell the world and all delights. Farewell meat and drink. Farewell sun, moon and stars. Welcome God and Father. Welcome sweet Lord Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Welcome blessed spirit of grace, God of all consolation. Welcome glory. Welcome eternal life. Welcome death. Imagine that created a stir. And then he died. Uh, I don't think it was just a a moment where he'd worked himself up. I think that Hugh McHale was doing a simian. He'd seen Jesus, and having seen Jesus, he was ready to face even death. Why? Because Jesus is the Savior that God has sent. He's salvation. He's the one that's sent for all people, men, women, a Jew, Gentile. doesn't matter what our background, doesn't matter what we've done. He's come to save people like us. He's controversial, yes, he was uh, one who brought great pain to Mary, but, but he was the one that ultimately meant that Simeon was at peace and ready to go. I just wonder, I, I hate to be morbid, but I wonder if in our own hearts we can say, you know what, I, not eager, not you know, rushing headlong, but, but yeah, I'm okay with dying. I have peace 
with God and I have peace about death because, because I know who the Savior is. And I know that when he came and he grew and then he went to the cross and he died, he died in my place. And then when he rose again, he was able to offer me life. And I've accepted that. I've trusted him. I know that I can never be good enough. And so I've given up trying to be good enough. And instead, I've, I've just trusted him. And now I live for him and with him. And in my heart now, I have that peace. I can, I can resonate with Simeon. I've seen Jesus and even death doesn't scare me now. I wonder if that's the cry of your heart. Or if you say, actually, I don't want to admit it, and I'm certainly not going to make a show of it you know, around these parts, but I'm kind of scared. I'm kind of scared of, of death and what comes after, because what if there is a God, and, and, and what if he does hold us to a perfect standard? And, and what if the standard really is all wrapped up in, in his son? And what if I've shaken my fist at Jesus and I've not... I, I'm kind of scared of that. Christmas is, is not about two hours of turkey-induced peace. Christmas is about bringing peace for the whole of life. Peace for death and and judgment and eternity. Peace, not just momentary tranquility, but peace between us and our creator. So that we can enjoy a relationship with him. I wonder if we are in Simeon's place. Where we can say, having understood who Jesus is and trusted in him. Lord, if you want to dismiss me now, I'm ready to go. Let's just pause and just think that through for a moment. It's a serious, serious issue, but that's where the Bible drives us. Because Christmas, according to the Bible, is a big deal. It's about a God stepping into this world to rescue sinners like you and me and to bring us into a relationship with God so that we can enjoy eternal life forever. It's serious business. So let's just take a moment perhaps to pray, perhaps to to just say, maybe all you can say is, I don't even know if you exist, God, but if you do, I, I want to know because it's so important. Maybe that's all you can say, just quietly in your heart, whatever it is. Let's just have a moment of silence and, and perhaps there, maybe there's someone here, you know, some of us who just want to go, you know what? Okay, I get it. I get it that I am not going to achieve peace. I am not going to earn salvation. I'm not going to be good enough. Okay, I, I get it. Jesus came. God's offer of salvation. He died for me. You don't have to pray kind of magic words or say it a certain way. Basically, all, all it takes is to say, okay, okay God, if, if that's what it takes, that's, I accept it. If, if it's about trusting Jesus, I trust Jesus. If it's about trusting him dying on the cross, I trust his dying. Would you forgive me because I'm a sinner? You know, however you want to phrase it, the, the wording is not the issue. It's the heart that's just saying, okay, I'm yours. Maybe for some... This is the time to actually say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Let's just take a moment of quiet. Then I'll pray and we'll sing our closing carol together.